Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 14. Love is a game. Easy to start, hard to finish. You distinguish yourself by not calling her. Four days he needs to call me. Easy to start. It's a very nice hat you're wearing, and I don't mean that in an Eddie Haskell kind of way. Hard to finish. Linda, Bye, Steve. I left my blue t-shirt at home. If you can't find love, you settle for sex. I'm on the bed right now. I'm wearing something really outrageous. I think you got the wrong number, lady, but I'll be right over. In the absence of sex, you go for companionship. Uh, you want to get some dinner? Um, how about some lunch? Have a lunch. Coffee? Water? How about some water? Soon you're just happy to have a friend. You know, in a parallel universe, we're probably a scorching couple. But in this one, neighbors. Of course, you can't sleep with friends. Singles. You know I see other people sleep. You don't fool me. Bridget Fonda. We made the connection, and when you make the connection, it's like chemistry takes care of itself. I mean, it makes its own decisions, you know? Campbell Scott. I was just uh, nowhere near your neighborhood. Kira Sedgwick. Did I overreact? <laughs> Do you know who this is? Sheila Kelly. Could you seat me next to a single guy? I've got a special feeling about you. Jim True. And Matt Dillon. Janet, you rock my world. Singles. If I make this basket, that's fate telling me to call him. Wait, did no basket need call him or don't call him? Never mind. Directed by Cameron Crowe. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that covers just about everything random in the world of popular culture. My name is Tom Panneries, and today I'm going to continue on a course that I started a few months ago when I talked about St. Elmo's Fire, and that's by covering another PCSD film. Now, if you don't remember what PCSD is, or you haven't listened to the St. Elmo's Fire episode, uh, PCSD is short for post-collegiate stress disorder, which basically means the listlessness of your 20s. The idea that when you're on your own for the first time, you really are trying to find your way. A feeling that has its roots in, well, like The Graduate, for instance. And continues through a lot of movies from the last 40 years or so, including the one I'm going to be talking about today, which is Cameron Crowe's 1992 film, Singles. So, in a sense, I'm actually following up on two episodes because I did say anything two episodes ago. I'm going to be doing exactly what I do uh, with films, which is give some background on the movie, go through the plot, give my review, as well as talk about the film's lasting legacy. In the case of Singles, uh, I'm also going to talk about its soundtrack, which, when you think of the film's impact in the 1990s, is probably more important than the actual movie itself, so to speak. But before I get to any of that, I have an email. Uh, this one is from Michael Bailey. Michael uh, Bailey, who hosts, uh, along with a number of other podcasts, two of my absolute favorites, uh, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, where he and Jeffrey Taylor are taking a look at all of the Superman comics published between uh, the Man of Steel miniseries, 
1986, and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. Uh, it's, it's a great, great podcast, and I highly recommend listening to that, as well as one of his other podcasts, Views from the Long Box, which is, is a wonderful, wonderful podcast that, I, that I'm a huge, huge fan of. Uh, anyway, Mike writes... So I have been playing catch-up on Pop Culture Affidavit. This was after I played catch-up on Taking Flight, and for that, I'm sorry. Sometimes podcasts pile up like comic books, but listening to a bunch of them in a row is a hell of a way to spend some drive time, chore time, and I should be working but want to sit down for a moment and get away from the craziness that is the start of Back to School. Yeah, I hear you, man. Mike, I'm almost out of podcast debt myself. Uh, my unlistened-to podcasts include three Blackest Night episodes of Hey Kids Comics, because I'm actually waiting to read Blackest Night first. I know it's been about five years since that came out, but it's one of those series that I was really enthused about, and then now I'm kind of like, I'm going to eventually buy the trades because I've gone this far, I need to finish it, and I just keep buying other stuff first. Um, A bunch of commentaries that I have to listen to, so I completely understand, but I'm actually flattered that you're listening and enjoying the podcast as much, so thank you. Anyway, uh, usually I listen to shows in order, but given the nature of pop culture affidavit, I can realize I realize that I can get up to the sh- get to the shows I look forward to the most, and then work my way through the others. Don't get me wrong; I like all the episodes. Certain subjects tend to stand tall above the others, which is why I choose to begin or chose to begin my listen through with your episode of Saint Louis Fire. And funny enough, Mike, I like this because that was kind of my whole intent. I- I'm sure that there might be multi-part episodes here. Or- or, or, you know, the same thing covered over the course of several episodes as I go on. But for the most part, I like the idea of anyone being able to listen to this thing completely at random. Like, you know, with the exception of emails, nothing really, you don't have to listen to anything prior to get what's going on in this episode. And, and uh, that was, so I'm glad somebody's picked up on that in a way. And I'm going to stop talking and actually let Mike speak for himself. As he continues, you and I have talked in the past that we have a very similar upbringing. We're a year apart and we grew up in different states, but certain constants, comic books, movies, WPIX, etc., keep popping up, which is why they're constants then. Should have chosen a better word. Anyway, I think it's safe to say that based on our conversations in your blog post that our taste in movies tend to run right alongside each other. That is why I was so excited that you were covering quite, what is quite possibly my favorite Brat Pack movie. I know, I know. Heresy, you shout. It's the Breakfast Club or nothing! And I understand your anger. Breakfast Club is a classic, and I like it quite a bit. I actually like all the Brat Pack movies. Sure, I was a bit young when they were released to get the whole teenage gestalt, or gestalt, but one of the great things about those films is even when I got around to being the same age as the characters on the screen, the writing was so strong and universal that I could still relate to them. It's because of this ability to encapsulate a specific time and place that St. Elmo's Fire is my favorite movie because even now I can relate to certain aspects of it. You spent the first part of the episode talking about the special time right after you graduate college, and on one hand, I got what you were saying, but on the other hand, I couldn't relate. For a variety of reasons, I was one of the many of our generation that spent a year in college and then dropped out. I'm by no means proud of this, but I don't wear a scarlet D.O. either. Actually, it makes the disorder you discussed worse. At least in college, you have a structure and a path to follow. Going into the real world at the age of 19 was scary as hell, and I, I was luckier than most in being able to maintain a job and a place to live. The weird thing is that feeling you get of being kind of lost and wanting to find yourself, like the characters in St. Elmo's Fire, 
takes longer to go through. This is the main reason the movie still resonates with me. Even though the characters in the film all finish their higher education, I still see my friends and I in them to one extent or another. It's not as bad as the movie Free Enterprise, where it seems the writers took the crew I hung out with in my early 20s, put us all in a blender, and mixed us equally over four characters. But if there's something about the hopeless romantic, the wannabe writer, the guy that screws around and the guy that screws up, that makes me feel like I know these people. Don't get me wrong, the film isn't perfect. It is rather dated, at t- and at times the characters border on being caricatures. I can't say it's the best film ever made. I just like it a whole lot. Yeah, Mike, the movie is rewatchable, partially because of its cheesiness, but also partially because it really does speak to the period in your life, and no matter what your circumstances were, and I think you really, really showed that. Um, and, I, and I think there's a relatableness to all the characters, despite the fact that in, in some cases they do end up being caricatures. Uh, something that I'll actually get to when I talk about this movie. Mike continues. More than anything, I think this film proves that Joel Schumacher is a solid director that can bring out the best in his cast. Yes, Batman Forever is silly, and Batman and Robin is even worse. But at the same time, he is a professional director working on a licensed property that is expected to make a bajillion dollars. And the fact that the studio puts so much emphasis on the toys needs to be considered. Joel did what he was told, and the result was bad in every sense of the word. I can still watch those films, but I can't say they are his best work. When you look at St. Elmo's Fire or Lost Boys or 8mm, you see a man that can tell a dynamic story and get you to care about the people you see on the screen. And Lost Boys, by the way, I want to say was produced by Richard Donner. Uh, a great movie, 8mm, underrated, and I'm not much of a Nick Cage fan, so that's actually saying a lot. Schumacher has his moments, by the way, Mike, and, and shouldn't be completely crucified for his Batman films, especially when uh, there were a lot of mistakes made by Warner's as far as creative interference, uh, and I've heard so much about Batman Forever anyway, not sure about Batman and Robin, but let's also not forget uh, that Joel Schumacher directed DC Cab. <laughs> so, all right, let me finish Mike's email. I can't get away uh, from mentioning the title song from this film, St. Almost Fire. The instrumental piece is awesome, but to be sure, I love John Parr's Man in Motion. It has a great opening, a solid beat, an awesome bridge, and a kick-ass ending. What I can do without is the video for the song. Some of it is the typical, let's show some scenes from the film around shots of John singing at the bar, but the ending is creepy. The cast comes into the set, and John sings the final part of the song as, as he walks past them. If you have a chance to see this, and I'm sure it is on YouTube, I suggest doing so. I've never seen an actor get as uncomfortable as Judd Nelson does as he is being serenaded by Mr. Parr. Is truly a sight to behold. Well, I guess that's it. Sorry this rambled on for so long. I appreciate the time and attention you gave this film, and I sincerely hope you get around to covering singles, because that movie is brilliant. Regards, Michael Bailey. Thank you for the email, Mike, and well, talk about synergy, right? You'd think I'd plan that. Really? And I'm going to make you think I planned that. And I'm going to take a quick break. (laughs) And when I come back, I'm going to give you a little bit of the backstory for singles, as well as the movie, talk about the movie itself. In the decade of the 1930s, even the great city of Cleveland, Ohio, was not spared of the ravages of the Great Depression. In a time of fear and confusion, a character emerged that would entertain and inspire millions of children and adults alike. He began not as flesh and blood, but as a simple line drawing. His comic book adventures thrilled millions around the world. The magic of radio gave to his name a breathless signature and sound. 
Then with television came a whole new generation to idolize his exploits. In the 70s, the world believed a man could fly. In the 80s, he was reborn in the comics, and the 90s saw his death, rebirth, and marriage. In the 21st century, he returned to the big screen and saw his origin changed and retold on several occasions. Through the decades, he has gone by many names. The Man of Tomorrow, the last son of Krypton, the Man of Steel. His strength is incredible. His name is legendary. His battle is never ending. Faster than a speedy bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. My name is Michael Bailey i host an internet radio show called views from the long box superman is my favorite character of all time and in 2013 he is turning 75 because of this a large portion of the episodes this year will be about the man of steel in a series i'm calling superman, superman at 75, 75 the celebration, celebration of a legend I'm going to mark Superman's birthday in fine style by examining all aspects of the character's history, from the comics, to the movies, to the television series, and beyond, both alone and with the best and brightest of the podcasting world. It may not be every episode, but the bulk of views in 2013 will be all about the Man of Steel. He is the first and greatest superhero of them all, and he deserves no less. Superman at 75. The Celebration of a Legend. A series within a series, and the biggest birthday card a fan can give his favorite hero, only at Views from the Long Box. Views from the Long Box is a Fortress of Bailey-Tude production. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and for this series, over at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Singles is, as I said, a film directed by Cameron Crowe, and it's his second feature uh, directorial effort, the first being Say Anything. Uh, it's his fourth movie overall. He did not direct, but he wrote Fast Times Ridgemont High and The Wildlife. The movie stars Campbell Scott, Kira Sedgwick, Matt Dillon, and Bridget Fonda, as well as Jim True and seven or several other actors and actresses who show up in smaller roles whom I, who, whom I will get to. It is an illustration of Seattle in the early 1990s, and it is notable for featuring what at the time were some of the biggest bands of the Seattle scene, including Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, and Alice in Chains. Uh, 
However, for all of its musical cred, it's considered one of the more disappointing of Crow's films. The reviews overall are mixed, and while it does have an 80% aggregate on Rotten Tomatoes, it doesn't have the esteem of Say Anything or the two movies that Crow would make after singles, 1996's Jerry Maguire and 2000's Almost Famous. Still, as I'll say time and again, I really like this movie, and I think it's criminally underrated. The film was released on September 15, 1992. It wound up pulling in only $18.4 million at the box office, making it the 68th highest grossing film of the year. It finished slightly above Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Free Jack, and just below a re-release of Pinocchio. The three highest grossing films are 19, of 1992, just for some proper context, by the way. Batman Returns came in number three at $162.8 million. Home Alone 2 lost in New York at $173.5 million. And Aladdin, which pulled in $217 million at the box office. So, not a success, per se, well, when you consider what it went through to get released, you actually kind of understand. Now, a lot of what I'll be talking about is readily available on the internet, and I'll post links to the entry on the website, because there's only so much that I can really go into, and some of the trivia surrounding the movie is actually truly interesting. Crow had the idea for this movie kicking around for quite a while before he actually went ahead and made it. As early as 1984, he was thinking of the story. However, at the time, he was thinking of setting it in Phoenix instead of Seattle. But in 1990, Andrew Wood of Mother Love Bone died from a heroin overdose, and after Crow saw how the music community of Seattle kind of came together following his death, he saw that there was potential to take this story, or his story, of 20-somethings, and weave it into what is essentially a valentine to the city, although it's not meant to be a look-at-all-of-these-rock-stores type of movie. In fact, Crow's cinematic inspiration for the film was uh, Manhattan, the film by Woody Allen from the 70s. And besides, he couldn't have made a look at all these rock stars movie because when he filmed it and finished it, it was 1991, before the explosion of what was what would come to be known as grunge music. So at the time, none of the bands that appear in the film are at, were actually famous. In fact, Pearl Jam, whose members uh, comprised Matt Dillon's character's fictional band Citizen Dick, they weren't even called Pearl Jam when the movie started filming. It was they were uh, then known as Mookie Blaylock. And I believe they, during the course of filming the name, they actually changed their name to Pearl Jam. Uh, my friend Chris also informed me that uh, Eddie Vedder was more or less completely drunk during most of the movie. In fact, he was completely wasted and had a disastrous performance at the film's release party or release concert uh, in, in Seattle, which is detailed in the Pearl Jam 20 documentary. The movie was finished in 1981, and it sat in the can for a year because Warner Brothers didn't know what to do with it. And it was released after they realized that not only was what was called grunge music was exploding in 1992, but that they had a ready-to-go grunge music movie. So this may not have ever been released if not for that particular timing. In fact, they didn't even like the title singles. Uh, They suggested everything from In the Midnight Hour... Love in Seattle and leave a message. And at one point, the title Come As You Are because that Nirvana song was popular. You know, 
it's a disappointment because you know Warner Brothers is usually just so good at, at managing their properties. I mean, wasn't that Wonder Woman movie great? Ah, come on. So the movie's in the can. Uh, Warner's is doing what Warner's does. And even before this, Crow isn't completely satisfied with his work. He, he's described it as a movie that he's felt is his biggest disappointment. He thinks it was miscast. And, and reading about it, I got the feeling that, that a lot of the miscasting uh, that he talks about has to do with the two of the film's leads. Uh, Campbell Scott, and who plays Steve, and Kira Sedgwick, who plays Linda. Apparently, Crow had written the part of Linda for Jennifer Jason Lee, And uh, he actually considered Johnny Depp for Steve, although Depp had just come off of 21 Jump Street at the time, and he didn't really feel ready to play the, the straight romantic lead in the movie, uh, he would go on to do Benny and June soon after this, actually. And incidentally, uh, one of the, the co-star of Singles, Bridget Fonda, who plays Janet, and Crow had actually written the part of Janet for Bridget Fonda, she would go on to star, co-star with Jennifer Jason Lee uh, in a movie in Single White Female. Matt Dillon plays Cliff, um, had also been considered for Scott's the role that went to Campbell Scott, but he wound up getting, wound up getting the, the lead, uh, not the lead, the role of Cliff. Dylan, by the way, is wearing a wig through most of the movie, a long hair wig, and he hated wearing it. In fact, it was one of those roles where he, I remember something reading about how like he liked to come in and play Matt Dillon. He didn't like to come in and play the character. Matt Dillon never gives off the idea that he plays he's a character actor. And so this was something really weird. But at the same time, he's actually pretty good in it. Campbell Scott's actually wearing a wig here and there because at the time he was either uh, filming or wrapping up filming or had come off of filming the Julia Roberts movie, Dying Young, where he played a leukemia patient. A movie that, by the way, was huge among girls when I was a freshman in high school. Uh... They love they love those. But again, they, they, a lot of them love tearjerkers. I mean, let's go back to the Christian Slater movie, Untamed Heart. Uh, with I think that's the one with Marissa Tomei. Or was that Bed of Roses? I know the Untamed Heart's the one where he plays the guy who dies at the end. And girls love Christian Slater. Cast correctly or miscast, those are our four lead characters, our four lead actors, and they are the focus of what are basically two romantic plots from a film. Uh, there are a few other supporting characters who get a decent amount of screen time as well. Uh, Jim True, or as he's known now, Jim True Frost, would go on to be uh, on The Wire. Uh, he plays Bailey, Steve's best friend. Sheila Kelly, who is now best known for creating an X series of exercise videos that called like the S factor or the S method that would actually like incorporate pole dancing into exercise. Uh, anyway, Sheila Kelly is, is the man chasing Debbie Hunt. James LaGrosse, who's one of those actors who shows up in, in uh, quite a bit of, of independent cinema and, and quite a bit of other, other things. And, and off the top of my head, I can't think of anything else I, I remember him from. But uh, he plays Linda's college boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, and kind of um, guy conscience friend Andy, the guy, the ex-boyfriend she still keeps in touch with and is very good friends with, and he gives her guy advice, that type of thing. Um, and Devin Raymond, who I haven't seen any other uh, real credits for, uh, is Linda's co-worker and friend uh, Ruth. 
The film, story-wise, is broken into vignettes, which don't really seem like vignettes, but more like seem like chapters, because the overall narrative of the film flows from vignette to vignette pretty fluidly. The titles of the vignettes are Have Fun, Stay Single, Blues for a T-Shirt, The Hourglass Syndrome, Blue Seattle, Expect the Best, The Theory of Eternal Dating, and What Took You So Long. And I was thinking of going through all the vignettes separately, but honestly, like I said, they work better as chapter titles because the movie flows pretty fluidly. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to recap the plot at certain points, stop to talk about what I think of those scenes, and I'll probably take it through the characters like I did Samuel's Fire more than I do you know, the, the kind of just going from point A to point B. But we're going to start with Linda, and that's how we start right away. Uh, we start with Linda addressing the camera. She's like, you know, first time I'm my own, no roommates, no boyfriends or anything, my first place. And we'll see that with our four main characters, Linda, Steve, Cliff, and Janet. This is going to be a recurring element. They'll talk to the camera. They'll do some sort of voiceover. Uh, there's a constant breaking of the fourth wall here in a way that actually works because a lot of times it doesn't work. Um, and, and this is one of the few movies where it doesn't seem out of place or awkward. Uh, a couple of other examples where this really works very well is, our, of course, Ferris Bueller's Day Off and High Fidelity. And because, like I said, it rarely, rarely ever works in a movie where the character talks to the camera. So anyway, they're talking to the camera, they're breaking the fourth wall, and Linda's our first character that we meet. She's an environmentalist, she works for a non-profit, and we see her get in and out of a relationship with uh, some Spanish guy named Luis, whom she meets when her car breaks down. Uh, she spends a couple of weeks with him, and he leaves to return to Spain because his visa is about to expire. In fact, on um, you know they sleep together on one of their last nights, and she gives him her garage door opener, saying, "When you come back, you'll have a place to park or, or whatever." And uh, it's something to remember her by when he leaves. And so he leaves, and she goes out dancing one night, and she goes over to the bar at, a cl- at the club to get a drink, and she looks over, and there's Luis flirting with another girl. So he'd been playing her the entire time, and she kind of walks by him with this just, like, aghast look on her face, and kind of like, holy crap. And he just kind of shrugs at her, like, oh well. And and it just destroys her. And, and, and I mean, damn, it would destroy me too. And and it sets it up, but it sets up in a quick, quick way the crappy relationship uh, that Linda got out of before she ran and runs into Steve later at a club. Um, in fact, at one point, uh, when Steve and her are having a conversation, she goes through like uh, a couple of her old boyfriends. Um, the one guy who breaks up with her at a roller coaster, which Steve describes as more like a professional hit. And then how she uh, met Andy. <laughs> when she goes to a safe sex party in college, become go dressed as your favorite form of contraception, and everybody's just kind of like, just it's one of those surreal experiences. Like, really, people are acting like this. And, and Andy uses the says, "There's so much life in you, and so much lar- emotional larceny in the, these other people." And and you're like, and even Steve's like emotional larceny, but um, but yeah, so. But she'll meet Steve. But before she meets Steve, we have to meet Steve. 
Uh, and that happens at his apartment. He just starts talking about some... He broke up with this girl, and she's dating a guy, and this friend who she's, who's just running around with her on this other girl, and it's just this whole massive complication. Like, when did all this stuff become so complicated? Uh, but he also mentioned something, the fact that when he was eight, his father left the family, and before he left, he turned to his kid, an eight-year-old kid, and said, have fun, stay single. He's like, I was eight. And, and it just introduces Steve as kind of a an everyday guy who just, you know, here's your complicated dating life and your friends in at that age. Um, it, it, there's something very high school about it, but at the same time, there's also something very sitcom-y in a sense, but definitely typical of it as well. So Steve and Bailey, and Bailey is uh, is a major data restaurant. He had, Bailey has a digital watch that store. He can store phone numbers in them, and he claims he's going to fill it completely and be the super me. Well, they go out to a club, and they well they start driving around because they can't find the club, and uh, they run into a couple who can't find the club either. So they pick them up, and then they pull over and look and and find a uh, a a mime who is played by Eric Stoltz who says, yeah, I know where the place is. And while they're in the car, they're listening to a song and, and the, the mime gets completely obnoxious and starts an argument with the, with the couple because, and, and, and gives this sort of treatise on love. And he says, you know, love disappears, baby. And he tells them and, and he, uh, he goes on to say that every time he's run out of money, the babe has been off like a prom dress. And then he gets into it with the, the girl. She's like, you know, maybe it's the ladies today. And he's like, maybe I've been hurt. And you know, it's just like, it's witty and it's funny. And it's actually kind of a nice little scene. And they do eventually end up at the club. And while they're at the club and they're on the dance floor, uh, Steve looks across the, the way and he sees Linda. So he makes his way over to her. And they have the following exchange. love this scene um i love this scene and and you really have to actually watch it because half of the scene is the look on kira sedgwick's face during the entire time steve's hitting on her and her character she i like her character her character is atypical of women in romantic comedies or really what's left of romantic comedies because not a lot of them come out because there are too many women in romantic comedies that are so dumb or scatterbrained or fits some sort of stereotype of a woman who's unfulfilled because she doesn't have a man. And Linda does not seem like that type. Uh, she falls into a trap at the beginning of the film, 
so she's understandably defensive but she's not whining and moaning about not being able to get a guy. She, she's whining and moaning about how many games people play and how complicated things are and, and just how annoying it can be. Which, yeah. That's dating. And besides, nobody falls for that line, Steve. Nobody. In fact, the only reason Steve gets her phone number is because after he and Bailey leave the club, he runs into her at a newsstand. And uh, a few days later, he asks her out. And, and he's like, you want to go for lunch? She's like, she's like, well, I have my lunch. She's like, how about coffee? No, you had coffee. Well, let's get some water. So they go to a restaurant. They have water. Uh, and they're distracted by a couple the entire time because this couple next to them is just making out like crazy. And when they leave, he gives her a ride back to work. And she leans over. She opens his car door for him. She unlocks the car door for him. And, and he thinks, wow, this this is... She unlocked it for me. She's... this. I have to play this one right. You know, it's, it's like, this is a good sign. Which, again, you like someone, you will overanalyze the things that you see as you two are kind of getting to know each other you know like what are the moments that tell you that give you the signs and they have a second date and the second date is them just kind of hanging out at his place she brings over laundry and she does laundry at one point they wash the dishes you kind of imply that they had dinner and while they're hanging out um he points out they sit in the courtyard and he points out uh who the occupants of some of the other apartments are it's 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 kind of our exposition to the rest of the cast uh without having to kind of, without having to, to have it take a long time, um, you know, he's like, you know, here's here's Janet, here's Cliff, here's Debbie, here's Bailey, and what have you. And this is where I am going to take the summary of the movie kind of in the direction of going over the three relationships we see. Well, two relationships and then Debbie and her relationship with des- desperation. Uh, we have Steve and Linda and Janet and Cliff. Because it's easier for me to break out it, into this way because the movie interweaves all of this, kind of beginning and ending with Linda and Steve because they're the principal relationship in the movie. But I like kind of separating them at least a little bit because it's easier to explain. So Steve and Linda. Uh, there's a connection here between them, especially after they spend that night talking about important stuff, and they play records, And but he in- inadvertently blows it, because uh, he gives her his garage door opener, says, you know, hey, next time, park underground. And uh, granted, he, if you, you're, it, it's, it's implied that she never told him about the whole uh, garage door opener thing with Luis from the beginning of the movie. So she kind of clenches up, and she's like, I gotta go home, and she goes home, and you can tell that she still kind of likes this guy. And as she's settling in, brushing her teeth and, and watching some TV, she there's a knock on the door. And it's Steve, and he just sa- answers and says, Hi. Uh, I was just uh, nowhere near your neighborhood. And they wind up having sex. Then he waits four days to call. (laughs) But they do wind up going out, and things progress relatively normally like any other relationship might, which speaks to how well the movie is actually written and why I think casting Campbell, Scott, and Kira Sedgwick wasn't that bad of an idea. The major criticism of the casting and singles, like I said, seems to be these two, because they are times, well, they're perceived as stiff or boring. Uh... 
in honesty, they just seem normal. And I think it works well because it grounds the film. If you look at them in relation to, to all of the other characters, Bailey, Janet, Cliff, and Debbie, as well as some of the others, you see that everybody else is kind of, well, like a type. Janet's the closest thing to our kind of romantic comedy dits, even though she's not that ditzy. She's more... It's more of like she's kind of still shedding her teenagerness being on her own, which you're still kind of doing in that post-adolescent way when you are 22 or 23. Cliff's your self-absorbed rock guy, the guy in the band who you know thinks he's kind of... He's Cliff. Uh, Bailey's the player, Debbie's the manhound, but Steve and Janet, aside from being well, typical early 1990s idealists, maybe also looking a little too old for their roles because Scott was 27 and Cedric was 29 when the movie was filmed, uh, these two guys are the everybodies, and the relationship is presented in a way that seems to be, well, trying to present what a real relationship might be, with some comedy added in. Well, that is until Linda's period ends up being late, which is jarring, of course. It's jarring in real life. And Steve ends up running to, uh, going to the grocery store and buying a, a, buying a pregnancy test, and he runs into a guy from high school. Uh, in this complete scene steal by Jeremy Piven, who at this point had been, you know, had been done a few movies here and there, and most notably he was the "Give me my fireball keys" guy in "Say Anything." Steve Dunn. Yeah. Doug Hughley, Mr. Deegan's class. Doug, hi. What is up, you old goat? How you doing, man? Okay, man. I haven't seen you in a long time. You know how much homework I missed because of you? I loved your radio show. That was the best. Thanks, man. You know what? We're throwing down tonight over on Aloha Street. Yeah, we've got two bands. It's going to be insane. Would you get up and do a little Wheels of Steel? Oh, no, no. Are you sure? Yeah. You're the only man I know who can mix up Elvis Costello and Public Enemy. What's so funny about peace, 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 love and under peace, 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 death row? What does a brother understand? Peace, 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 understand peace, peace. You're the best, man. You are the king. You are the king. You gotta be there, man. You must be there. Of course, you may be busy. So Linda winds up being pregnant. And Steve winds up asking her to marry him. She agrees, and they have this scene in a movie theater where they end up being surrounded by, like, you know, the screen. They have this, this screaming kid in the movie theater, and you just kind of turn to, uh, they turn to each other, and they're like, are we sure about this? And they're both like, yeah, yeah, we're sure. Which is echoed in a bit by Patton Oswalt from a few years ago. Uh, look it up on YouTube. It's the one where it's if you look up Patton Oswalt owns a heckler because in the middle of the bit, this heckler guy screams, whoo, and he goes off on the guy, calling like a douche nozzle, and, and, and it's, it's great. But the whole setup is the joke of he thinks he gets this girl's pregnant to go to get plan B, and they have to go to Costco. And if there's any better birth control than going into like a Costco or a Walmart where all these people are walking around with their annoying screaming kids, that's it. That's where kind of where this joke comes from. Um, we don't have to worry about the pregnancy storyline for very long anyway. Uh, she gets into a, they get into a car accident 
and she loses the baby. And it happens pretty quickly too, in all honesty. Like the pregnancy, the going out, the getting the, the agreeing to get married, um, and the accident happened. It seems like to happen within a few days of one of each other. And and uh what results is that Linda Linda ends up spending a couple weeks at home and then she gets this um trip to Alaska she'd been working on to study something and she she's going to be gone for a month or so and she decides to go on it and Steve throws himself into his work which is you know as you do when when your your relationship isn't always at the forefront of your life and when she gets back things are very very awkward and the relationship kind of ends which is where the film's flaws stand out the most this pregnancy storyline in the middle of the movie on some level I get it and I get how after that they throw themselves into their work and they more or less pass the time while they're separated. And I think it's it's unnecessarily dramatic. Yeah, there are some good comedic bits in there. Jeremy Piven's scene, of course, that the taking of the pregnancy is done kind of in a cute way where the thing turns blue. It's like, well, maybe if we hold it up to something blue or maybe we hold it up to something white and you see that, yeah, this fucker is blue. Um, the movie theater scene I just mentioned... But all in all, it's too heavy. Then again, what I like about Steve and Linda's relationship ending is that there's no also no breakup scene. It's not like he cheats on her. It's not like they have a big fight. It's just awkward. He meets her at the docks and she comes back. They can't. It's like, wow. I think she sees like, you know, we could go back to being friends or let's not have this awkwardness between us. It's just like, ugh. And it's just not there so we don't get like a fight in the rain or a shouting match you know nobody attempts to take a Springsteen record out of apartment and gets yelled at for it it just sort of ends and that happens with relationships sometimes to his credit Crow tries to play this pregnancy storyline subtly but the car accident comes off as his way to get out of it like he's written his plot twist into the film but he doesn't want the film to be about Linda getting pregnant so car crash Lost baby, tension, and awkwardness. Um, yeah, it's just it, there's there's an imbalance here. I don't know how to fix it. Not that Cameron Crowe wants me to fix it, but it, it just it's it's tough to get past at times. But it does start off them off on a path where they both go back to work, and Steve ends up kind of going on a downward spiral because he eventually loses his job. But before he loses his job, Steve goes back to a club, the club where he finds, uh, where he actually met Linda, and he sits in a phone booth and, and, and has one of the all-time greatest drunk dials and answering machine messages in, in movie history. I had, to, I had to call you. Uh, it's about midnight. I was just having many beers, and, and I, I wanted to say what I should have said at the dock. Uh, I fucking chickened out. I, I lied when, I'm, when I acted casual like Mr. Casual, and I should have said it. You belong with me. We belong together, and, and, and you know what really pissed me off is that, I mean, now that we're really talking, you thought that 
I proposed to you only because you were pregnant. What's that about? I mean, I told you to go Hey, this is not the bathroom. And, you know, maybe if I had said some of these things at the dock, it, it would have made a difference because, but I think, I think we made a big mistake because we had good times and, and, and bad times, but we had, had times. And, and I would, I would like to, I would like to start over. I would like to, I would like to be new to you. I want to be new to you. I want to be Mr. New. So call me back if you want to. But this is the last time I'll call. And, and if you really needed to know how I feel, how I really feel, that's how I feel. I love you. And uh, that's something you should know, so... I won't bother you again, so good night and goodbye. And uh, I love you. Call me back. Goodbye. Any message, by the way, that starts off with, I was just having many beers, is awesome. And while this is an awesome all-time great drunk dial, it's it's honest. It's funny. I love how people keep interrupting him because they think it's the bathroom. And he's like, hey, this is not the bathroom. And I like that the machine eats the tapes so she never actually hears the message. But... It so it doesn't work on his part, but it works great in the movie. Uh, in fact, it's it's second only to the painful answering machine that Mike leaves in Swingers on Nicole's answering machine after he meets her at a club where he keeps calling and calling and calling and calling. And, and Nikki finally picks up. She's like, Mike, don't ever call me again. Um, but anyway, back to the spiral. Uh, Linda, you know, after... After uh, after their relationship falters, Steve leaves that message, and then he's, he never really calls again. It's it's very much like I said. It's it's almost like a Lloyd it's my eighth and final call one. And but Steve never does the say anything bit with the boombox. Linda goes back to getting together. She gets back together with Andy, who uh, James LaGrosse, who's Mister Sensitive Ponytail Guy, and Steve um, doesn't get back together with anybody. He pitches his Super Train idea, uh, which is his his big big, you know. He works for the Department of Transportation. That's his big, big idea thing that he's working on. Um, to the mayor of Seattle, uh, who's played by Tom Skerritt. And the idea is flatly denied. Uh, he, he he bombs in the meeting. It's at a crowded restaurant. And, and this, the way it's done is a scene very, very similar to Bob Sugar firing Jerry Maguire. Uh, which is just kind of cool. And Steve actually does end up losing his job, and then he proceeds to spend the next, oh, I think we're supposed to believe it's a few days, maybe even as long as a week or two, in just in his apartment. At one point, Janet even comes by to check on him, and she helps him out, uh, because Steve had been there for her through the entire, earlier in the film, when she was dealing with the fact that she was dating Cliff and loves Cliff, but Cliff's not reciprocating. And their relationship, which is the B-plot, of course, isn't incredibly deep, and is more played for laughs 
but really is a great play on that sort of here's the nice girl dating the asshole or dating the loser or dating the jerk. Look, Cliff's not unlikable. Cliff's kind of a, li- a likable character, but she's clearly dating a guy who doesn't treat her well, which happens so many times because you know people like that. You know girls like that. You know girls you look at, they're like, why are you with him? Cliff, like I said, is the lead singer of Citizen Dick, a, d- a band that seems to be the kind of a running joke in the Seattle music scene, or at least Cliff's the running joke in the Seattle music scene. At one point, he reads a review uh, in the alt-weekly paper, and it's just the, the review is just a scathing review of him, and he's like, skip all the negative things, I want the positive, and, they, and, and Eddie Vedder and, and, uh, and one of the other guys has to skip down all the way to the end of the review and say, other than that, he was ably backed up by, you know, you know, basically Pearl Jam, and, and Eddie Vedder goes, oh, uh, good news for us is good news for you, and he's like, no, I'm feeding off the negative energy, it only makes me stronger, and all that shit, and, because um, he takes himself too seriously, he's completely up his own ass, and especially when it comes to Janet, who he only notices or, or treats as if she's an annoyance, he tells her, you know, I still see other people, and and she doesn't have the best self-esteem anyway, and at one point she actually goes to a doctor to get breast implants, because Cliff had more or less insinuated that her breasts were too small, and he you know, has an apartment where there's all these pinups of, of big boobed girls and what have you, but she doesn't get them. She ends up breaking up with Cliff and decides to be single. And it's cute. It's it's very cute. And it works very, very well because Janet really illustrates the maturity you have at 22 or 23 and you're on your own for the first time and you really have no idea what the hell you're doing. Um, plus, it's Crow's in a sense, Crow is trying to subvert the idiot woman in a romantic comedy trope, uh, because Janet doesn't seem like a moron, she just seems like she's acting her age, and he gives her a genuine friendship with Steve. Uh, Steve's the guy who accompanies her to the doctor for for the implants, he actually tries to talk her out of it, and and when they're in the lobby of the, the waiting room of the doctor's office, they have this conversation. Thanks for doing this with me, Steve didn't want you to go alone. Tell me from a girl's point of view, what do you, what do you really want from a guy? Well, when I first moved out here from Tucson, huh? I wanted a guy with looks, security, caring, someone with their own place someone who said bless you or gives him tight when I sneezed you know and um, someone who liked the same things as me but not exactly and someone who loves me tall order yeah I scaled it down a little well, what is it now someone who says gazoon tight when I sneeze although I prefer bless you it's nicer so later on when she's now Miss Independent, and Steve's wallowing in his misery, wearing a bathrobe, he probably hasn't showered in days, He's there's garbage all over his apartment, and he has the beard of sorrow. She provides the same life preserver, and he awkwardly does try to kiss her, but she she backs up. She's like, she backs him up. She's like, no. People need people, Steve. It's 
got nothing to do with sex. Maybe 40%. 60%. Forget it. Forget it. Tell you what. If I have any kind of news of any kind, something good, something nice that I want to share with you or something, mm -hmm. I will knock four times, okay? It's going to be our secret code. Okay? How? What? How? How what? How will you knock? Okay. Take care of yourself, Steve. Please. You know, in a parallel universe, we're probably a scorching couple. But in this one, neighbors. And this winds up helping him. It kind of wakes him up just a little bit. He just kind of snaps out of it a little bit. He starts sending out resumes and what have you. And he gets his act together a little bit. And, and at one point, there is a knock on the door that, that is kind of the same rhythm as the secret knock that he and Janet decided on when they have big news to tell each other. And he thinks it's her, but it's not. It's actually Linda. And they have this exchange. Hi. I was just nowhere near your neighborhood. I don't need to be your girlfriend. I just want to know you again. What took you so long? I was stuck in traffic. At the end of the movie, Steve and Linda move out, and he winds up being yet another character in the film who found some sort of love. Uh, Debbie actually is one of as well, although she goes through this calamity. Um, it's the C-plot. It's a minor plot. In fact, it's probably it's not even central to the to anything else, but it's really f kind of funny. And what happened was that, that her friends all, as a gag gift, bought her a video date from a video dating service called Expect the Best. And she decides, well, you know what? I'm going to go through this. Why not? Because she's just... She, as Steve says at one point, Debbie consumes men. Um, and she puts together a video and the guy, and she gets a bunch of of, of clips back from different guys, and one of the guys she uh, she chooses is played by Peter Horton, who at the time was best known for having perfect hair on 30-something, and had recently been in the C. Thomas Howell beach volleyball epic, Side Out. But anyway, Horton plays this guy named Jamie, who's her, who's her, her date, and he likes to ride a bike. So Debbie goes out and gets a 10-speed and bike shorts and, and bike top and, and a helmet, and she's Miss Cyclist, and she goes to a restaurant that they had planned to meet at, but she goes to the wrong location, so she ends up the wrong, being late. So she goes to the other location, asks if the guy had shown up, and they said, she said, the maitre d' says yes, and he left 
a message for you saying that he got your address from Expect the Best, the video dating service, and he went over. So she heads down to her place and walks in on him with her roommate flirting in the kitchen making popcorn because the two of them went to college together. And Debbie and her roommate Pam go outside and they have a pretty loud argument where they end up auctioning him off. <laughs> and 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 then she turns around and she's like, Debbie, Pam, I'm not going to Cabo with you. And Debbie's like, Pam's like, Debbie, you're being plastic. And so Debbie goes, to, you don't see much of Pam after this. And Debbie goes to Cabo and she's on the plane. She's like, tells the, the ticketing agent, can you put me next to a single guy? And she gets to sit next to a single guy. She gets to sit next to like a 13 or 14 year old kid who hits on her the entire flight. However, she falls for his father, who's played by Victor Garber. So probably inconsequential to the plot or anything else. It's more funny than anything but it's it's a fun part of the movie and the video that she puts together is ridiculous and it's even more funny because the guy who she hires to direct the video to make the video for her who her friend says is the next only the next martin scorsese is played by tim burton I kind of wanted to look up whether or not they actually had Burton direct the, the the making the best video, but I'm pretty sure the crow threw that together. But it's it's typically it's actually weird and surreal and 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 re- pretentious and redonkulous, kind of in a Tim Burton parodying Tim Burton sort of way. But anyway, in the end of the movie, our couple Stephen Linda gets back together, and they end up moving in together. And Cliff and Janet, well, they finish off the movie with uh, a kind of a sweet end scene. Hey. Hey. Going out? Yep. You? Yeah. That's a very nice hat you're wearing, and I don't mean that in an Eddie Haskell kind of way. Thanks. Bless you. Thank you. Does everybody go through this? No, I think just us. And I like how this ends, uh, because after that line, you have what you'll have is smatterings of conversations that are taking place throughout the city as the camera pans out from building and to the city as a whole, showing that this is, yeah, everybody. Everybody goes through this. And it's pretty a pretty successful way of showing a story about, well, normal relationships. There's nothing unique or unattainable about the characters in the movie. It's not like anyone's some high-powered something or impossibly wealthy or has sort of a how-can-you-afford-to-live-like-this lifestyle or scenario. It seems like all of these characters are people we could know or could be at one point or another in our lives. And for any flaws that it has in casting or writing, Singles is done very well. I don't hate any of these characters. In fact, I really like both Campbell Scott and Kira Sedgwick in their roles. I think Matt Dillon is really funny as Cliff because he doesn't overdo it. And, well, it's really hard not to have a crush on Bridget Fonda after watching this movie. I mean, I had a crush on Bridget Fonda when I saw this 20 years ago, and re-watching it, I can really see why. Now, that's the plot. (laughs) 
and and my opinion really i mean there's there's great stuff in this movie there's great scenes there's great lines uh many of which i've hit upon but what i want to do before i go to break and talk about the soundtrack is run down a list of cameos because uh, there's a ton of people in this movie who just pop up here and there and 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 i tried to put as complete a list as i could together as i watched the film because I can't talk about singles without going through them. So I know I've mentioned a few already, but let me just go ahead and list them and tell you where they are and and maybe comment here and there. Uh, starting from the beginning of the movie and going toward... The, starting from the beginning of the movie. Christopher Masterson plays... Or Christopher Kennedy Masterson plays a young Steve in a flashback where he learns about where babies come from, courtesy of a doctor, because his father left him and his mother was a college professor and took him to the doctor. And he's like, you know explains it in biological terms. Uh, Masterson would go on to play the older brother, Francis, on Malcolm in the Middle during the the early 2000s, and he is the brother of Danny Masterson, who played Hyde on that 70s show. Gary Marshall, who created Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, and Mork and Mindy, and has directed several other films, uh, most notably Pretty Woman, is the doctor in that scene. (laughs) You do know what the penis is, right, son? Mother looks at him and goes, yes, I do. Uh, Pearl Jam, specifically Jeff Emmett, Eddie Vedder, and Stone Gossard are the members of Citizen Dick, uh, which is fronted by Cliff Poncier, played by Matt Dillon. Eric Stoltz, as I mentioned already, makes another brief appearance in a Cameron Crowe film. This time he's the obnoxious street mime. And you have to know it's Eric Stoltz because it's not as easily... He's not as easily identifiable this time around as he was as Valaire um, in, in, in Say Anything. Alice in Chains and Soundgarden both appear in club scenes. They play various songs including Wood and Birth Ritual which are both on the soundtrack. Plus Chris Cornell has a cameo as a guy who walks by the apartment when Cliff is showing Janet that he installed her car stereo and cranks the volume up so high that he blows out all of her windows. Speaking of guys walking by the apartment, uh, when Cliff is telling us about how Steve and Linda are moving in together, uh, there's a couple of guys moving a couch out of the apartments. One of the guys is Gus Van Sant, the uh, the director. Paul Giamatti is the guy making out with the girl in the restaurant where Steve and Linda are sitting next to them having water, and they're just there. They are just slobbering all of each other. And what, at one point, Steve and Linda are staring at them, and he turns to them and goes, "What?" <laughs> And you hear the girl off camera go, there's just no privacy anymore. Um, it's it's one of his earliest film roles. James LaGrosse, like I said, is Andy, Linda, Linda's ex-boyfriend, uh, Mr. Sensitive Ponytail Man. Xavier McDaniel, who at that point, uh, who was a who was a basketball player, and, and, and Steve has a poster of, his, of him from the Seattle Supersonics, and I want to say he was a New York Nick at one point, too. Steve and Linda have a discussion about him because she refers to him as a boxer, not a basketball player, and he's like, you dare to rip the X-Men. And he actually has a speaking role where he's talking to a a Seattle sportscaster guy who's who I cannot identify, but he was a local sportscaster, and, and he says this. I just go out and just play basketball, good hard-nosed basketball. Things happen throughout the course of the game. It's nothing you can do. Uh, I don't go out to look to say I'm going to beat this guy up or beat that guy up. Anything else, X? Yes. Steve, don't come yet. 
Moving on, Bill Pullman, who would go on to play the president in Independence Day, but we all know as Captain Lone Star from Spaceballs, plays the plastic surgeon whom Janet goes to see about breast implants. It's kind of funny because he actually winds up getting a crush on her, and he says, you know, I'm going to perform the operation, but you don't need it because you're perfect. And she lets him down easy and and ends up actually not having the operation partially because of what he says and and the whole idea is like you know cliff should really like me for who i am so she kind of wakes up after that ali walker an actress who is currently on sons of anarchy but whom i remember from an nbc show called the profiler uh, which aired in the mid-1990s plays pam who's debbie's roommate Tim Burton, like I mentioned, directs the video that De- Debbie does for Expect the Best, the dating service. Peter Horton is the bike guy, the bike, the guy she winds up picking, but whom flirts with Pam uh, from the Expect the Best video. Tad Doyle, who is the lead singer of a Seattle band named Tad, plays a guy that Janet accidentally calls. She thinks she's calling Cliff, and she's like, I'm being sexy, I'm wearing nothing, and ooh, I'm horny for you. And, and he just says to her, she's like, Lady, I think you got the wrong number, but I'll be right over. Bruce Pabot, who was then the head of Sub Pop Records, one of the most important independent record labels of the late 80s and early 90s, is one of the guys that Debbie can choose from, from Expect the Best. Jeremy Piven, of course, the checkout clerk that Steve buys the pregnancy test from. Brian Backer, who played Mark Ratner in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, is seen briefly at the newsstand when Steve's kind of walking through and passes the newsstand where he met Linda or got Linda's phone number. This is after the breakup. Tom Skerritt, who I mentioned already, who I had known for years as Viper and Top Gun, who's also an alien, but by then was playing the lead on Picket Fences. He was playing the sheriff. Uh, He plays the mayor of Seattle. Victor Garber, who would go on to play Spy Daddy in Alias, was uh, the guy that Debbie eventually falls for. And the director of the film himself, Cameron Crowe, has a cameo as a reporter who interviews Cliff while he's at a club. When I get back, I'll talk about the soundtrack and the film's legacy. Hey, Kiss Comics! Hey, Michael! Yeah? We need to do a new promo. A new one? A new one! Why? Because we've moved. Moved? Moved. We've moved to a new place. We still read comics. We do. We still talk about comics. Because you can't do a comic book podcast unless you read and talk about comics, because that's kind of stupid. But now, we have a new episode still available every Thursday, but at twotruefreaks.com. Hey Kids Comics! So remember, Hey Kids Comics has moved to twotruefreaks.com. Still, every Thursday. That'll do, won't it? So the soundtrack to Singles was released on June 30th, 1992. It was a top 10 album. It did not hit number one. Uh, If you look at the Billboard 200, from the middle of 1992, the entire summer of 1992, that Billy Ray Cyrus album with Achy Breaky Heart was the number one album in the country for like two months. There's no accounting for taste. Anyway... Uh, the album did go top 10, like I said. It's certified double platinum, and I'm pretty sure everyone in my generation owns it. Especially if they also did listen to bands like Pearl Jam, 
or Alice in Chains or Soundgarden when they were in high school. In fact, uh, I posted something about singles the other day on Facebook, and my friend Chris said that uh, it was one of the first times he realized that bands could record more songs than they actually use on an album, as there's two Pearl Jam tracks here on the album that weren't on 10, but are kind of 10-era Pearl Jam songs, uh, both of which are great. Uh, I got the album through Columbia House, and I'm pretty sure that, the, with the exception of hearing Jeremy on the radio, uh, this is my first exposure to the band. I'm going to go track by track, kind of like I did with Say Anything, and say briefly uh, where they are in the movie. Uh, you can buy the album through Amazon. In fact, to plug uh, some the podcast of, of friends of mine, uh, if you go to 2TrueFreaks.com and click the Amazon link, you they'll get a little bit of a kickback, which is pretty cool because they have some great podcasts over there. The album is readily available on Amazon because it has not gone out of print like some other CDs here and there. And it's really worth picking up, especially if you're a fan of 90s music. So we have Wood by Alice in Chains, which is also on Dirt, as I mentioned in the Columbia House episode, and is played as one of the band's club performances. Breath by Pearl Jam, which you hear during the scene where Janet asks Cliff if her breasts are too small, and, and uh, which is part of the vignette known as the Hourglass Syndrome, and Cliff says, more or less, yes. I think he says sometimes, but he definitely means yes. Seasons by Chris Cornell is track number three, and it's used heavily when Clark is wandering through the Great White North, saving people covertly before he has discovered his Kryptonian heritage and put on the costume which he will eventually wear as Superman. Oh, and it's used in the scenes post-Steve and Linda's breakup. Dyslexic Heart by Paul Westerberg is used in some form in a coffee shop scene, but it's mainly played over the end credits. It's one of two songs from Westerberg on the album and his first post-replacement's work. It's also the weaker of the two songs, mainly because the lyrics are kind of ridiculous, but it's a fun, poppy song, So, I, and I actually really like it. Battle of Evermore uh, by the Lovemongers, which are a duo made up by Anne and Nancy Wilson. Wait, isn't that Hart? Yeah, the Lovemongers were a post-Hart project by the Wilson sisters after Hart more or less imploded due to their producing corporate rock for the latter half of the 80s, some of which is actually good, quite a bit of which is utter crap. Uh, For the life of me, by the way, I cannot spot this song in the movie. Um, Part of me thinks that it's a way for Crow to work Led Zeppelin onto the soundtrack, because Zeppelin never gave the rights up until about the early to mid-2000s. Zeppelin rarely gave the rights to its songs to anyone, uh, and Battle of Evermore is on, on Led Zeppelin 4. Um, and it's also, and, and part, so part of me thinks that was his way to sneak Zeppelin onto his soundtrack, as well as to sneak uh, Nancy Wilson, his wife, onto the soundtrack. But then again, I don't think Nancy Wilson really needs much help from her husband. But if you know where this actually appears in the film, please let me know. Because it, it was bugging me when I was writing the notes for this episode. Chloe Dancer, Crown of Thorns, uh, which are kind of two songs smushed together that, that connect together and are by Mother Love Bone. It's a big, nice eight-minute piece or so, and, and it's worth all eight minutes of it. Uh, it's used while Steve and Bailey are driving to the club in the beginning of the film, and a line in the song start, sparks the conversation between the mime and the couple about love disappearing. This is one of the best songs of the 90s. Hands down, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous song. 
Birth Ritual by Soundgarden. That's performed by Soundgarden on stage during the film. State of Love and Trust by Pearl Jam. This is the better of the two Pearl Jam songs, although breath isn't bad by any means. It is used in the beginning of the film during the scene where Linda and Ruth go to a club, and Linda winds up spotting Luis, who she thought was in Spain, but obviously is in Seattle, and this, of course, devastates her uh, and leads up to the eventual meeting Steve. Overblown by Mudhoney shows up briefly during the end of the Expect the Best video that Debbie makes. Waiting for Somebody by Paul Westerberg, the other Paul Westerberg song, and the better of the two Paul Westerberg songs on the soundtrack, that's used over the opening credits of the movie. Westerberg, by the way, scores the film, uh, it, it, and that the, the movie has a, a guitar score to it, a guitar rock score to it, uh, that really is good. It's, it's, I almost wish that, that I could track down some of the instrumental guitar pieces from the movie, because they're, they're, they're done pretty well. They're, they're very uh, late-era replacements and early-era Westerberg solo, obviously. And one of them, which is part of the montage that shows Steve and Linda going out, which has some piano to it, sounds like a little bit like a Westerberg song that would come out on his first solo album, 14 songs, called Dice Behind Your Shades, which is, which is a fun, which is a nice song as well. Uh, coming up next is May This Be Love by Jimi Hendrix, a gorgeous song. We see it used by Linda and St- when Linda and Steve are on their second date, the one where they're hanging out at his apartment, and they're doing uh, some dishes, and they end up playing records. Nearly Lost You by Screaming Trees, a song that the band would be, that band would become known for. It still gets its fair share of airplay on like 90s flashback stations and stuff. It's used during the pregnancy test scene. And finally, Drown by Smashing Pumpkins, which is half a good song and half mindless feedback. <laughs> it's used toward the end of the movie, after the Janet and Steve kissing advice, scorching couple scene. In fact, it's done over a shot of Cliff walking down the street with his uh, guitar. Now, overall, this movie was overshadowed by its soundtrack. You could say the same for a couple of other films at the time, especially Reality Bites, which come out a couple of years later, and Empire Records, which would come out in 95. Both of those films had hit songs off of their soundtracks. Stay, I Missed You by Lisa Loeb, a cover of Baby, I Love Your Way by Big Mountain, and The Resurgence of My Sharona by The Knack were all from the Reality Bites soundtrack. Uh, A Girl Like You by Edwin Starr and Till I Hear It From You by Gin Blossoms were both on Empire Records. Both of those movies had great soundtracks, Both of those movies didn't do too well at the box office. Time's been kinder. They're both real cult classics, and they're movies I'll definitely get around to covering at one point or another, either on the blog or as a podcast. But really, I'm pretty sure you can find quite a number of people who have the soundtrack to singles but have never actually seen the movie, even though it shows up on cable every now and again and is an accidental early 1990s period piece. Then again, not everyone is like me and still has his VHS copy. In fact, I bought my VHS copy off the video store. The video store was um, selling off for like, I think it was like um, $5 each or 5 for $25. They were having an, an old copy of a video sale. This was about 97 98 And I got, I bought five movies at 25 bucks and um, no, five for $20. So I bought $20 worth of movies. I remember I bought this, Pretty in Pink, Pump Up the Volume, 
the big chill and I don't know <laughs> I really don't know what the fifth movie in that was Two hundred cig, not two hundred cigarettes. Maybe can't hardly wait. Although no, I think can't hardly wait was still in theaters at the time. Um, I know this is fascinating podcasting here. Not some kind of wonderful, and I'm not in front of my my. Uh, Thing. I suppose it's inconsequential. I'm gonna say planes, trains, and automobiles, but I'm not sure. Anyway, they were selling off used tapes in the late '90s. Mine still actually has the video store stickers on them. Maybe I'll take a photograph of it and put it on the blog. The problem, getting back to the movie, and not my odd memory for things. Mike Bailey and I have one more thing in common. Isn't the movie itself. It's the time period. Uh, in Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, Chuck Klosterman briefly mentions it in comparison to Reality Bites, which is a comparison that's made often because those movies came out within a couple of years of each other. And it says, that, and they, they have very similar stories to them. He says that one of the things that struck him was how old the characters looked and how they didn't seem as listless or unsure of themselves as the characters in Reality Bites, whom he could relate to. It's true for Steve and Linda. Steve and Linda seem like they're in their late 20s as opposed to their early 20s, like Janet or maybe even Bailey. Cliff is... Cliff's your rocker guy. Debbie, you know, again, some of these guys seem like uh, a little more typical of your sort of... 20s listlessness what have you. I don't want to use the phrase quarter-life crisis because I hate that freaking phrase. Uh, and I know I'm generalizing here, but I can see where Klosterman says that Singles is basically a romantic comedy with Soundgarden on the soundtrack. Um, and 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 he mentions that... He also mentions at one point, I believe, that, yeah, like how old the characters look, you can kind of tell that. But Jonathan Bernstein in Pretty in Pink, The Golden Age of Teenage Movies, a, movie, a book I have uh, referenced several times now, winds up delving a little more into the period and blames Generation X's inability on, or, well, unwillingness to be pandered to or sold to as one of the down, uh, downsides or the, one of the downfalls of this film. The, it's the beginning of, the, of chapter 11 of the book, which is the um, second-to-last chapter. It's called, the, chap- the name of the chapter is End of an Era. Slackers, students, preteens, post-20s, kids, and clueless. A funny thing happened on the way to the 90s. The generation who cheerfully accepted cynical cinematic representations of themselves and their lives grew up and rejected movies that attempted to depict them in a realistic and sympathetic light. Though Richard Linklater's Slacker played along with Nirvana, the Lollapalooza Mudbath, and Douglas Copeland's bumper sticker compendium Generation X, a crucial part in the cultural confluence that forced Motley Crue into hacking off their hair and attempting to cultivate goatees, films aimed at a youngish audience found few takers with much derision. Why should this have been? Weren't the legions of Americans between the ages of 18 and 19 pop culture fluent to the extent that they were more comfortable in the presence of small screen radiating 
of a small screen radiating images of the Brady Bunch than they were around their own fractured families. Perhaps. But a quick glance down the shopping list of accepted Gen X characteristics reveals nestling between minute attention spans, heavy irony, heavier ennui, fear of the future, and resentment of the wasteland of a world bequeathed to them by their stoner parents, distrust of the same, very same media that, sh- that suckled them. Commercials, sitcoms, rock videos, news shows, and movies. They were all the same. They all wanted to sucker you in, spray soft drinks down your throat, and stick sneakers on your feet. The ridicule and disgust that greeted the first faltering attempts to market products to suit the perceived needs of the almost groans proved that the unthinkable had occurred. The audience had got smarter. In fairness, it has to be said that the advertising campaigns in question, Subaru's It's Like Punk Except It's a Car, and Coke's Experimental Fizzy Drink OK with its Dan Klaus artwork, would have been laughed off screens and left on the shelves by consumers of any generation and any culture and any age of civilization at any time, ever. Add to this lingering mistrust of the media, the fact of the approximately 45 million Americans included within the parameters of the Gen X definition, probably 75% were either oblivious or resentful of the label, and it becomes apparent why movies claiming to speak for their frustrations and aspirations of 20-somethings were greeted with little or no suspicion. He then mentions... Reality Bites, and he goes through the whole problem with Reality Bites, and he says a similar fate in terms of low turnouts greeted Cameron Crowe's Singles, which was based on a, in Grunge Mecca Seattle, featured an entire rehab wards worth of lumbering rock acts, and Matt Dillon in the part that should have been his Jeff Spicoli. All of those ingredients failed to gel, though the center staging of Straits Campbell Scott and Kira Sedgwick didn't help much. And the movie quickly fizzled, as did the likes of Threesome, With Honors, Richard Linklater, brilliantly realized exploration of the origins of the slacker species, dazed and confused. In fact, it wasn't until the release of Pulp Fiction, the porkies of its day, inasmuch as it altered the notion of what could be put on screen in the name of entertainment, and its influence could be felt in lesser works for years to come, that the 20-something audience fully and completely embraced the movie as something that spoke to them. Here was cynicism, here was pop culture overload, but without the we're-all-in-this-mess-together overtones that made some viewers think they were attending a college reunion with all the people they tried to avoid the first time around. And like I said earlier, I agree and disagree with the assessment of Scott and Sedgwick, but we do, I do see what he's talking about. Which is why the film was underrated, by the way. Um, in fact, I think the film was underrated because it was ignored. It winds up being, cause it, it winds up being one of those I-kind-of-want-this-to-be-my-life films. Kind of like how if you watch Empire Records, it makes you want to work at a record store. Uh, this is something I found really tip of, really explained well in this really nice blog post on a blog blog called Hello Giggles. Um, the, the, the author is a woman who is now in her late 20s and was about 20 to 23 back in like 2003, 2005 or something. I was, was a teenager in the early 2000s and now is in her late 20s. So she's, she's kind of a decade removed from the movie. Her post is Five Ways Singles Ruin My Life. And I'm going to link to it on the blog because it's kind of a long post. But I do want to read this one paragraph that is just great. I think it's been complete, I've been pretty clear throughout my life that I love the 90s and everything that happened in the 90s. So once you throw a movie by Cameron Crowe at me that takes place in Seattle in the 90s, I am sold. I want to wear all of Bridget Fonda's clothes in this movie, and basically it caused me in college to think, well, I'm out drinking, so where's Campbell Scott? No one you will ever meet in a bar or out dancing will be Campbell Scott. Not possible. But I have called someone a while out and said, I was just having many beers, so... 
And overall, you know, that's what this movie kind of is. You, on some level, wish your 20s were this interesting. That you were friends with the people in your building the way your friends were pe- you were friends with the people in your dorm. And that you went out all the time. You stumbled around in relationships. You just fell into and out of love. And you worked for interesting places and companies and people. And, and it was just interesting. And to some extent, I think you have that. Which is why the movie seems so attainable. But it's not always like that. But then again, not everything is a storyline. It's not everything is wrapped up in a plot. But it's realistic enough that it makes you want it and makes you enjoy it, makes you relate to it. Especially years down the road when you've passed your 20s. My 20s are way in the rearview mirror. I passed that exit a while ago. And I still see the fun in, in, in singles. And I still see the feeling of singles. And, and remember the feeling of singles as well. Even though I actually didn't live on my own. I lived on my own for all of a year, but I moved in with, with the woman who became my wife. I moved in with Amanda. She became my wife. She's not my wife, and we've been dating since college, so I never stumbled in and out of love. But definitely the friendships and the oddity of some of the things and what have you were there. The other legacy of this movie, by the way, was a pop culture juggernaut that would come about in 1994. Because after this movie was done, Warner Brothers and NBC approached Crow about spinning off into a television show, specifically a sitcom. Crow didn't like the idea and balked. NBC held on to the idea. But they got a whole other team to develop it. And that team changed the setting from Seattle to New York, titled the sitcom Insomnia Cafe, then titled the sitcom, changed the title to Friends Like Us, before settling on the sitcom's Final title, Friends. And if you know that, and you go back and watch singles, you see Friends. You see the genesis of Friends. And I was, in fact, I, I was watching this, and I, I went and jotted down Friends as I was watching it. And I had kind of known that, but not known, like, but it had to go back and I looked it up. And, and when I looked it up and I was like, yes! And and it's just kind of amazing. Because Friends isn't a terrible show. You watch the first four or five seasons of Friends and it's pretty good. It's it's good. It's great at times. It's pretty good at others. It, it clearly jumps the shark in the episode where Ross is supposed to marry Emily. Yet he says, uh, where they go to London and he says Rachel's name at the altar and the audience squeals like, the same way the audience would squeal when Zach kisses Kelly on Saved by the Bell, which is another episode or discussion entirely. But but it's just kind of funny how, like, you know, you see where things inspire other things. And my feelings is that this is a go-to movie. I'll throw it in on a day off because I find it funny and I love the soundtrack and I really enjoy it. And, you know, check it out. Go hunt it down. It's on DVD. Unfortunately, you know, and, and, and Crow himself has said this, the DVD and the Blu-ray re- release, I believe it's also on Blu-ray, um, have all been bare bones. A couple of uh, deleted scenes, one which uh, <laughs> fulfills the, the line that Bailey has at the beginning of the movie where he says, um, I live my life as a French movie, like a French movie, Steve, and he ends up basically meeting a girl in a bar uh, and and it, it it's right out of a French movie. In fact, it's in French and it's subtitled. 
there's a scene where Steve goes to Linda's place and she's not living there anymore and Debbie Mazar plays the girl who had moved in and she's with her boyfriend and she's just like, yeah, tell her to pick up her mail or whatever. And then there's an extended version of a scene where Steve's walking by the, uh, where Steve's walking by the newsstand. Um, but none of that is actually new on the DVD or the Blu-ray because it's actually on the VHS copy I have. You just have to keep watching for another five minutes or so after the credits end. So it'd be great if they could get a commentary together, do some other deleted scenes, maybe a featurette about the soundtrack or something. I mean, this this really is due for like a nice time capsule DVD in the same way that Reality Bites got one when it came out uh, twenty uh, ten for the ten year anniversary of that particular film. But go check it out. Definitely go get the soundtrack. And um, and I, I you will not be disappointed. It's a really fun film. It's really enjoyable. And, and I had a lot of fun putting this together. And that's it. Um, I'm not exactly sure what I'll run in the next episode. I've got a couple ideas going around. Um, and, and we'll see what I can get in the can. But until then, thank you for stopping by. Thank you for listening. And uh, have a good night. have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, or other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Clips, pictures, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, a blog where each week I take a look at a random thing in the world of popular culture and give my opinion as well as personal experience and memories I have with it, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback and other comments about this podcast can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness.